Hello and welcome to another episode of Chipping Away, where your hosts Akash and Durga take you on journeys of South Asia, its history, art, archaeology, and everything in between. Today we continue our conversation with Kush about wrestling, grappling, and physical culture as expressed in material culture or archaeology. When I targeted the question for masculinity and wrestling or grappling in arts, my intent was precisely that, that we bring in sometimes a very post-colonial or colonial reading for the arts in terms of what we think categorizes as masculine arts and feminine arts. And that is not to mean that there is not a facade or a backdrop of women engaging in these arts. And you bring out some beautiful examples while highlighting some of the case studies made to be for God sisters or Mary Com in the modern context, or some women wrestlers at the Mahanagmi Dibba. But there is also incongruency in terms of how much of population or how much of these cases are represented throughout the literature in terms of women wrestlers, other than the ones at Mahanagmi Dibba actually finding a place on sculptures or in arts, something that we can get to in this later part of the discussion. But this is the idea that probably I would like to revisit again, especially when you talk about about the Iranian and Indian connections through wrestling and grappling. Because also in Sikhism, there are a lot of trends in terms of how men and women and their bodies are accultured into this grappling tradition and the do's and the don'ts for different genders. And as we know quite well, that India has a rich history of acknowledging the genderless, the transgender, and the people who are two-spirited. And their inclusion in the wrestling or physical culture is also something which is a whole topic so I will not let us digress far but I just wanted to flag some points and probably this is something that we can turn back to subsequently but yes you were saying something about arts let's dive into that in fact, you just brought about Sikhism. Actually, the Sikh martial arts that Guru Gobind Singh introduced, Gatka, I think it is the only martial art where enough women are allowed into the Nihang Khalsa. And although, unfortunately, Gatka is now more of a choreographed event at Amritsar or international Sikh festivals or something like that. But since you brought it up, I would like to say that if I had to talk about gender neutral arts of war, I would point towards Gatka that is the Sikh, and I would actually point towards Thangta, which is Maitei Manipuri martial art. And what about Kalayari Pattu? It is also gender neutral, is it not? Yes. Unfortunately, we see more are men, but as we know that the Nayars, the Nair lineage is supposed to be matrilineal families. I have interacted with a lot of Nayar, Panikar and Nambiar or Menons to see that in everyday life, they have a more women-centric way of living, including Kalari Paitu. But I think one more thing which I learned from my interactions from Professor Philip Zirelli, who just passed away a few years back, but I don't think anyone has done more work on Kalari than him. And of course, Rohita Ishwar from Mysore. Dr. Ishwar told me that his mom used to compulsorily send him to a Kalari Sangam every year for two months so that he could be a better dancer. And Philip Zareli himself was a theatrical performing artist who actually wanted to learn Kathakali and he ended up learning Kalari Paitu too. I really want to get deeper into this that were women inducted into Kalari's 
for the sake of being better kathakali dancers or were they actually fighting in the wars shoulder to shoulder with their men as well right i mean that is something that not many people know and i think as long as a lot of tamilakam texts and medieval malayalam texts are not properly translated or rewritten in malayalam or tamil it is very difficult to come to that conclusion because i would really want to understand those dynamics for example when i do capoeira right like capoeira is another body movement martial art these days like we see more dancers and more dance movement therapists or you know body movement people than actual fighters doing it since a long time capoeira ceased to exist as a fighting art and to keep it alive the mestres in the favelas of brazil started introducing it more as a strengthening stretching exercise form and dance form which is perfect like you got to do what you got to do to survive but do we still call it as an art of war because when mestre bimba introduced capoeira in the quilombos and the favelas it was actually to fight the portuguese colonialists which certainly is not happening anymore so like i think studying martial arts from the point of view of holistic performing arts is also a very new way of understanding how these arts are evolving and another way of understanding is that see whichever martial arts we talk about right now whenever they originated or whoever started practicing them their first aim was self defense and it is later that a sports aspect of these martial arts came up for example judo wrestling and wushu sanda are olympic sports and i think from when they became sports people started enrolling more into them and a lot of evidences in japanese text in kodokan actually named after jigoro kano talks about how everyone doesn't want to fight people want to learn to stay fit people want to learn as a recreation people want to learn to probably defend themselves but not defend every day so he introduced the concept of randori which is non combative drilling and nevaza which is actually sparring so like even today i have these discussions with my jiu jitsu coach i am a part of a fight team but i am not a fighter so when i enter the mats my intentions are not to choke out anyone right which is the intention of a lot of people who are sparring with me by the way and i have broken enough bones of mine and very few of the others to you know come to that conclusion that people need to evolve also from business point of view right like how many people actually want to fight in the ufc or in krishna shroff or tiger shroff matrix fight night right i mean there are more people who are coming in for fitness for recreation you know like as a change in their monotonous life so these things are very interesting from you know anthropological point of view which i do intend to work on later but i'm just putting them out there in this podcast so that whoever is listening can you know transfer these things into their specialization like a lot of dancers are doing same kind of studies a lot of cooks a lot of singers a lot of musicians and you know like we have to learn from each other's methodologies at the end and thank you for this plug because that also fits in beautifully with the theme that we are now going to launch into discussion the arts is where wrestling culture as a physical culture or grappling culture is more than just self defense or just as a form of aggression because even with some of the people who are actively in kalari paitu that i have seen for myself have been practicing kalari paitu for a number of years with a female instructor as a form of self improvement and to 
let the body take its agile form and continue with the lyrical body movements that a dancer would need. So that would also fit perfectly in the way grapplers are probably represented in the Vijayanagara friezes or across the friezes that you have studied for your work. And probably their translation to plastic art or sculptural art is something that we would love to be enlightened on. If I talk about how grappling sculptures have evolved in the plastic art of India, as far as Buddhist and Jain sculptures are concerned, which are portraying grappling, Buddhism sculptures are actually more from the Gandharan school of art, which actually Ingholt has documented very well. And these sculptures are basically pre-Buddha period of Siddharth. And in Jain, like the only theme that repeats again and again is the duel between Bharat and Bahubali. However, after say Gupta temples, for example, say post Deogad period and in Vakatak art, say in Paunar Vinoba Ashram, we start seeing representations of grappling and not just like sport grappling, but grappling to kill your opponent. So we see these depictions in art and if we come down to say Gurjar Pratihar period of North India or even say like their late contemporaries like Chalukyas of Badami and Rashtrakut and Kalachuris in the Deccan, we start seeing more depictions but still in the epic-narrative forms. So we see like for example in Osiyan in Sachiya Mata temples or in cave number 16a at Ellora, we come across multiple grappling images from Ramayana and Mahabharat or Krishna Leela point of view. And it is very important for us to understand that even though we do have a lot of Rajput architecture present in predominantly Mewad and Mewat regions, but this is a time when Mahmud of Ghazni and in 1206, the Delhi Sultanate has established their stronghold. And we actually come across less examples of iconography and temple building in general in the northern parts of India. But the Deccan continued to thrive under the Kalyani Chalukyas and then the Hoysalas, Kakatiyas and Yadavs. It is actually under the Yadavs, Hoysalas and Kakatiyas that we start getting diversification in the purpose and the symbolism of grappling sculptures in Indian art. There are actually sculptures which are more like a motif form, right? Like on pillars, individual sculptures, not part of any ongoing narrative. So we start getting sculptures where people are actually watching in one side a grappling duel happening. The best example is actually in Chenna Keshava temple, Belur, where the sculpture is right in front of your eye. So like that means that people wanted to show these sculptures. And the same time like at Modhera, which is pre-Hoysala Yadav period, but we see a clear migration of artisans, grapplers, because the Gujarat Sultanate had started establishing itself. So in Modhera, we see a lot of grappling depictions in very crude forms, in the Narathara and the Pattikas of the base. But as we go towards the Deccan, in Yadava temples, in Hoysala temples, we see huge, highly ornate and highly specialized moves of grappling being depicted in these monuments. And post-Hoysala and Kakatiya in Vijayanagar, when the Bahamani and the Vijayanagar empires are well established, the Vijayanagar empire, they actually even further diversify. 
RKK Rajarajan who has done a really good work on sculptures of the Vijayanagar Nayakas that is post Vijayanagar he calls Vijayanagar art as a new paradigm and i think we do see a lot of continuation from Hoysala Yadav and Kakatiya art into Vijayanagar art but at the same time we see amalgamation of a lot of local and folk life into Vijayanagar art the best example is including of Yellamma cult into Vijayanagar cult, inclusion of Mallari or Khandoba into Vijayanagar, inclusion of Vithal into Vijayanagar cults, inclusion of Thiruvengal Nath from Tirupati into Vijayanagar cult and most importantly a really big Shri Vaishnav cult of the Rama. Now, Vijayanagar kings, as they are expanding, they have to placate plethora of audiences, subjects and hence to win their support, they are actually using the power of ritual and divine rituals to, you know, placate the public. In a lot of myths of Vijayanagar, there are small, small indications of how Harihara, Bukka and later the Thodavas, they are very smart in integrating their empires and without warfare. They actually used art and imagery, iconographic and iconological symbolisms to, you know, integrate various strata of the society. Although they did maintain the Varnashram Dharma, Vedic ideology, Brahmanical ideology, but they were so smart that they saw that there is Persianate culture, the Persian way of life in the secular life, not in the religious life. So, Harihara and Bukka were not Muslims, but there was this cosmopolitan culture all over the Deccan, which was dominated by the Persian way of life because Vijayanagar was surrounded by Persianate, Shia and Sunni kings all over. So, for them to amalgamate well with the crowd and for them to attract manpower, human capital, artists, they had to adopt this portionate way of life which Phil Wagner and Richard Eaton have done wonderful work on like for example on the dresses of Vijayanagar kings, the Kullai and the Kabbai and the titles the Vijayanagar kings gave themselves, Hindu Raya Suratrana. Actually, that is the first inscriptional evidence of the word Hindu in Indian history. Before that, the word Hindu doesn't come anywhere according to Cynthia Talbot. So, basically we see grapplers are an important section of the society in the form of now jetties who were living in huge numbers in the Deccan, especially after the Hoysala rules. We actually have an inscription in Arsikeri on a Hoysala temple where Munni Jetti donated a land for a Durga temple. So now we can see that the Jettis and the grapplers have a pretty good lifestyle. They are probably high up in the Sanskritization process as well because you know we get very stray references of how not just Vijayanagar like Hoysala, Yadav, Kakatiya court there were grapplers at every section of the society and another very interesting thing Adil Shahi dynasty was a breakaway of Bahamani dynasty in Bijapur and the Adil Shahi dynasty's protagonist his name was Yusuf Adil Khan Yusuf Adil Khan was a Khurasani Jawan Mark and he actually joined as a cook in the Bidar court. But one day what happened, a grappler from the Delhi Sultanate court came and he challenged all the grapplers or pehlwans of the Bidar court and no one could beat him. And then Yusuf Adil Khan said, let me fight. And the king said, no, a cook cannot fight. So Yusuf Adil Khan says, if I win, you win. If I lose, you don't lose, I lose. 
so the king thought okay there is nothing to lose here let him fight and he beat that guy and that is when yusuf adil khan was given the subah or the watan jagir of bijapur from where he broke away and started the adil shahi sultanate and actually emma flat in her recent book in 2019 has documented this incident very vividly and she says how in the persianate world there were men of pen and there were men of sword these were the two elites and yusuf aldin khan was the epitome of jawan mardi in deccan and actually we find sculptures of central asian or turko persian grapplers in a hindu vitral temple what i am pointing towards is that vijayanagar rulers and the later nayakas and even marathas they were very tactical and they were very smart when they realized that by if we want to survive we have to be very practical in everything even though like we are hindus or brahmanical faiths we do believe in virupaksha or vithal or pampa or bhuvaneshwari but we cannot deny the cosmopolitan culture and the local idioms that are more persianate so they used art as a very nice tool and intelligent tool to communicate with everyone and the art assimilated so well with the present day society so the thing is that a grappler a kolata dancer and a horse rider certain occupations or certain way of lives are so epitomized in vijayanagar art which shows how important things were i mean there are so many incidents of horses i mean horse is the center of debate people actually say that portuguese empire could not survive in india because of the fall of vijayanagar empire because vijayanagar empire bought so many horses that they were feeding the entire country of portugal and when their biggest client is gone the portuguese actually had nothing left for them a lot of people say that art is a language and the way art interacts with the viewer or the audience is very personal all you can do is you can probably conceptualize and you can probably anticipate what all kind of audience will be interacting with the art and you very smartly plant your motives your narratives in such a way that all strata of the society contemporaneous and future like the way we interact with vijayanagar art now the vijayanagar art will never be redundant that way there will always be new and new perspectives coming to light which the madurai nayaks and the tanjavur nayaks they learned that you know the importance of art and i think jean deloche has documented it really well how you highlight the local idioms versus the sort of elite forms of expression is also a telling example of how grappling and other physical forms of art or expression were rallied into the mainstay expression of what a vijayanagar empire or any big crown or rule at the time really meant and defined themselves as and we see that quite a lot along the west coast of india as well that is something similar which is happening in ahmedabad or along the coasts of kokan when the african or the ethiopian merchants land and they insert some aspects of their physical culture which is not exactly grappling but some form of holding hands and all of that but the expression of physicality and physical art as a sort of local idiom that gets inserted into the local expression or cultural definition is something that needs to be worked through on different levels and platforms as you are rightly doing it needs to be highly dynamic like there is no word for grappling in spanish so it's a problem not just something that we are facing 
However, we have problems on multiple levels because we have a very diverse group of languages which are spoken, read, written at the same time. Due to globalization, a lot of other languages are coming in as well. You're absolutely right, Durga. Like these things, for example, Amanda's work on the Korlai Portuguese, right? These Creole is, it's really useful and really important to have dynamic dictionaries. Right. And if we just restrict our conversation to physical culture and grappling, I can think of Veena Das's example when she worked on Mallapuran and how it redefined the modern population through the genesis of a so-called lost text. Because some of the JT Mulls were unaware of Mallapuran until she started her fieldwork in Gujarat. And it was a sort of revival in that physical culture which tacked on the literary tradition of the medieval period. But because it was a revival of a physical culture, more than one person could participate and it was egalitarian in that respect. So there were no boundaries as such as to who was allowed to grapple. And it sort of took on a life of itself. And there was a huge revival in what the JT Mulls considered as their ancestral art. I had the opportunity to interview some of the JT Mulls in Gujarat. And it was an absolute pleasure to see how they were so passionate about their lost art form and pull out photographs of their ancestors practicing Kushti and Pahlwani. Veena Das's work, which is more like a comparative study of the Kalika Puran and the Malla Puran. And then she hints upon the Ugras or the Purgis in the Kaveri Puranam. A jetty from Karnataka, from uh, Nimbaja Devi Trust, has recently written a book called Legacy of Jetties, which is again more a journalist writing or, you know, more like eulogizing his ancestry. But if you are a good social scientist, you can pick certain good points from that book. I mean, there is stuff out there, but I genuinely feel that we need to put it in such a lucid and such an approachable manner. The way you are writing your blogs and this chipping away podcast, we need to make it a norm to take our research to the public. Otherwise, it's of no use. It is just going to rot in the libraries. I really feel that is really important. And that is why we started chipping away to add more access add-on discussion in a forum to discuss various ideas and to show their relevance and interconnections with the present society. And your line of research fascinates me as well, because rather than just restricting to anthropological research in physical culture, you're tacking on to the arts, its expression in fine arts. Because right when you were retelling the story of Yusuf Adil Khan, I could instantly remember the images which are rendered in the style of Persian portraits of him with focus on his physical feature, his body, his physique, and how it tacked on to the backdrop of his being a wrestler, which I was totally oblivious about. I think what you've done is show how important a position both grappling and the people who are carrying out these activities were important to both the culture, the society and the people in power. However, we've also seen how the people who wrote in the pens at the end of the day beat the elite of the swords. And that is why as time is carried on, people have forgotten these traditions, these ideas, these concepts and these people and work that you're doing is actually bringing them back to life. It's wonderful and I think this is a beautiful way to end this episode. We'll love to have you back, talk about more such concepts, more discussions on these wonderful art forms, the artists and the people who work on them. Thank you so much. Thanks, Akash. I really appreciate you people having me over. Thank you, Kush. And thank you all for joining us on our discussion as we explore the theme of heritage. We will be back with a brand new episode 
in a matter of 15 days. Till then, keep chipping away. So we'll meet soon and until then, keep chipping away. Bye-bye. Chippin' Away is available on all major streaming websites such as Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and so on. So go ahead, subscribe wherever you feel comfortable or you can just log in to Buzzsprout and check out Chippin' Away. We have a new episode coming up every fortnight, that is after every 15 days, so twice a month. Each episode comes with a new theme, new points for discussion and something for us to take back and ponder on. So join us in our journey of understanding our collective past better and to question the existing and new theories and models that we encounter every so often. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ChipinAwayIND and drop us a line about your comments, inputs and what you would like to hear from us at ChipinAwayIND at gmail.com. In this current environment of chaos, uncertainty and a lot of tension that surrounds us with the pandemic, impending lockdown and other restrictions, let Chip in a way be your little moment of recluse from the world around you. Help us make this little movement a little more better by reading the blog posts that go with our podcasts and other discussions online and offline. For the blogs, you can check out www.klmighty.com that is K-A-L-E-M-I-G-H-T-Y dot com. We have all the links in the description for our podcast and you can check it out online on Google, Spotify and other major streaming sites. So, see you again in a matter of 15 days with a new topic, a new theme and something new to pick your brain with. Till then, keep chipping away, stay safe and take care. Bye-bye.